from the American Association of Cardiovascular and Pulmonary Rehabilitation. It's the AACVPR Pulse Pod, and I'm your host, Tom Draper. Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the AACVPR Pulse Pod. And today, my guest is Eva Serber. Eva is a psychologist and professor at MUSC, the Medical University of South Carolina. And she's going to be talking to us a little bit on psychosocial management in cardiac and pulmonary rehab. Eva, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Excited to have you here. Um, so before we get in um, to some of the questions, tell us a little bit about you and your background and your interest in, your interest in this topic. I've worked within cardiovascular behavioral medicine and uh, working with pulmonary rehab as well for longer than I care to admit, um, going on what maybe more than 15 years, um, started in grad school and just have a love for these patients. And I really love the cardiac rehab model of integrating all these lifestyle changes, nutrition, exercise, um, and well-being. Uh, these are personal tenants of mine. So it really pulls it all together professionally. So I've been working in this field, love it, and I'm happy to be here to talk about it. Absolutely. And such an important aspect of our rehab programs. And so, so happy that we can highlight that and talk a little bit about, and uh, you've recently written a paper in, in progress in cardiovascular uh, diseases entitled Psychosocial Management in Cardiac Rehab current practices, recommendations, and opportunities. And you wrote it with um, uh, Joel Hughes, who many of our audience know, as well as Tyler Kuhn. Tell us a little bit about that paper and, and, and the genesis behind writing that and, 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 what, and what came out of that paper. I think it's a really great uh, paper. It pulls in a lot of concepts and things that we you know, are trying to uh, you know, give to an audience to be able to create more behavioral health specialists and, and more guidelines of taking what we know, what we've been doing to expand and be able to have more providers do a similar practice in terms of uh, including behavioral health and mental health within cardiopulmonary rehab. So I think that's more of the impetus and how it all came together. And we were able to kind of stack a lot of information in a, in a very small, <laughs> uh, you know, page limit. Uh, so it's chock full of information. Um, and I think it's going to be really useful for others. I hope. Absolutely. I think it's a, it's a great and relevant tool for, for all of our teams. Um, so what would you say um, are some of the primary psychosocial needs for our outpatients in cardiac and pulmonary rehab? Some of those primary needs, I think, are a lot of what we may know. Uh, anxiety, depression really uh, become prominent, but also substance use and sleep difficulties, general stress, but also the overall changes in lifestyle. So people coming into cardiac rehab are really having some new changes in their life, uh, as well as some new difficulties. And... I think also not to minimize is some cognitive difficulties that, that come into play, which then also relate to all of those things as well as their progress. Absolutely. And, and sort of piggybacking on that, um, you know, talk a little bit about, and I think we see this in our, in our practice of our patients, but 
how, you know, psychosocial impacts and needs and then education can have a, a really positive impact on the adherence to them in, within cardiac rehab, obviously changing any type of health behaviors that they need to. Um, talk about, you know, that aspect of, of, and that impact that having a program like this within your rehab programs can have an impact on that ad, ad, adherence and those uh, healthy behaviors. I think every provider who works within cardiac rehab, whether those are the nurses that, that exercise interventionalists, uh, as well as behavioral med, um, behavioral health providers, health behavior change and behavior change is just part of what we all do. And thinking about behavior change, starting cardiac rehab, maintaining its participation and completing it all require behavior. So thinking about attending sessions two to three times a week, um, that's a commitment, uh, taking new medications and then following those exercise routines, learning new nutrition or diet. I mean, it all pulls together. And so being able to have a behavioral health specialist who has additional training to make those changes happen, um, maybe creating more motivation or confidence in the person to be able to create those changes uh, just really all comes together in that way. And being able to, I think, also have the patients be able to continue to engage in their valued activities that even predate cardiac rehab or their, their cardiac condition that brings them there. Absolutely. And, and, and I think what I've always found valuable for when, when I have partnered in rehab programs with a behavioral specialist is the value that they bring to the team in educating and giving the team skill sets. So tell us about how you do that at MUSC. Do you, do you have formal training for your staff or um, is it just they are sort of part of what you're teaching their patients and so they, sort of, they learn it that way? It's a little bit of both. When I was more integrated before COVID hit us, <laughs> um, sometimes that training was just being on the floor and having conversations um, if they had a new nurse uh, on the floor or uh, just a new situation came up, it would be a conversation, uh, being able to expose them to a mental health provider that they might not have uh, previously worked with. There's also times I've done in services of being able to teach uh, different behavioral skills like motivational interviewing, um, also helping feel more comfortable if uh, suicide or depression comes up um, and being able to talk to the patients about those concerns as well as document those concerns and then of course follow-up care. Yeah and that, and that leads into one of the questions I was going to ask at, as well is that escalation process um, because certainly uh, you know patients will need a higher level of care. Um, so how do you, one, train your team on what that level is? Uh, what tools do you use in order to say, you know what, we think that, that this may need a direct referral to me or, or, or one of my colleagues? There are a variety of validated screening measures to use for depression or anxiety that may or may not include a specific suicide risk question. So those are uh, 
a specific way of doing it. The PHQ-9 is one of those, and that is one of our, in our list of performance measures um, that folks use in accredited programs, as well as just well used within medical and mental health clinics. So um, most, a lot of folks are familiar with that one. But then also, again, a little bit of, of training of, of the staff of maybe what to listen for in terms of patients tend to talk a lot when they exercise and maybe express some comments of hopelessness or um, not really looking towards the future. So those kinds of things might, you know, pop your pop the ears up of the provider. You know, thinking about those screening measures that all patients receive at intake and at exit, those are always good to follow up throughout the time, but also with that scoring system. So again, I'll just use the PHQ-9 as an example. Most people know that a score of 10 to 14 is considered, uh, you know, an indication of maybe moderate depression. And for us at MUSC, for example, 15 is a cutoff where they will make that specific referral uh, to me and my colleagues in our behavioral medicine clinic um, and really try to encourage that continued care. I think that is absolutely vital. And to your point, and I really like you making this point, is, is training the team to listen for certain things while they're exercising or they're checking them in or checking them out. I, I think that is, that is, that is crucial. And it just goes to, again, the value of having someone like you be part of that program uh, because you're only one person. You're not going to be in every class. You're not going to be there all the time. So having that expertise sort of transcended to the team and then having the ability to then elevate when needed I think is a very important component to it. So um, uh, really, really uh, excited about that piece and, and, and hope that most programs are looking at it that way as, as well. Um, so tell me a little bit more about some of the actual interventions. So whether it's in a group setting or individual setting, um, what are some of the interventions that you specifically do with patients in cardiac and pulmonary rehab? I like to say that cardiac rehab in and of itself is kind of like a, a CBT lab, a cognitive behavioral therapy lab, because <laughs> of course I am very excited about it, but you know, patients walk in, they've got the support of seeing other folks in a similar place as them. They've got the support from their staff, but then they also are able to uh, see differences in maybe their perceived symptoms and actual symptoms. So being able to use maybe the telemetry uh, systems to be able to see the difference in their perceived heart rate or uh, you know, feelings of shortness of breath with the actual what the instruments are saying. So I think being at cardiac rehab in and of itself are psychosocial interventions. And those are just a couple of things off the top of my head. But again, patient education, um, of course, that is a huge component of cardiac rehab, cardiopulmonary rehab, uh, you know, different specific lectures, if you will, didactics to the patients, um, as well as then learning on the floor. Physical activity and exercise is obviously a huge behavioral intervention. We know it's a, it's a contributor 
to treatment for depression and anxiety. Um, it increases our energy, it increases our mood. Um, and what's particularly can be fun for patients, again, is seeing that successive change. And so then they're building confidence as they can start to walk further or lift a little bit more resistance, um, those types of things and uh, learning stress management. So again, most staff are familiar with a variety of different relaxation strategies, whether that's a meditative practice, a diaphragmatic breathing or purse-lipped breathing, uh, progressive muscle relaxation. So all of these are different psychosocial interventions that both the behavioral health specialist can be doing with patients, but also the rest of the staff. Yeah, you actually answered one of the questions I was going to ask, and that's, you know, how you see the integration with all the other services being provided. And, and it, 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 it's a valuable point, and I think is why the research has shown, like, supervised cardiac rehab and pulmonary rehab work so well is because you have the interlink. And it's not just exercise. It's not just dietary. It's not just psychosocial. It's not just medication. It's the interlink of all those. Um, and we and haven't so, even mentioned nutrition yet. I know, I know, which is, which is a huge component and, and, you know, talk, talk, talk a little bit about that, about how you link that, um, with the work that you do. That's also, you know, again, a great integration where the patient might meet with the dietitian and get some very set recommendations and guidelines, but then they struggle to implement it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a really good example of it's not just knowledge that creates change. And so then being able to sit down with the patient and look at, you know, what those changes they need to make, what might be those barriers to making them. And again, the dietitian does this as well and everyone else, whether it's, you know, maybe they live in, you know, a food desert and they can't get certain foods that were specifically recommended um, and they can't make that generalization um, of that change. And so again, it's just more communication and talking and figuring out where those barriers are um, to create that, that change and to work all for the program goals. Absolutely. Uh, one last question, and, and I'm going to shift gears a little bit and talk about what we've been going through for the last two years with the pandemic and, and with the rehab patients. What, what have you seen or have you seen anything change with how you're approaching patients? Obviously, you know, set aside the virtual, non-virtual, inpatient or, or in-person, not in-person, but have you seen any, has anything changed with your approach or your approach with your staff over the past two years? Yeah, I've definitely seen some changes and I don't know if I'm the best person to speak about what I've seen. So that's been the huge change for me is prior to the pandemic, I was in the cardiopulmonary rehab clinic uh, a day a week and was able to, you know, kind of talk with patients on the floor, but then also have those scheduled sessions. And it did feel as much as it was a co-located model um, the patients felt like it was integrated because they was all in one shop. Um, so with that and the numbers and the restrictions, I was no longer there. And so I'm even still now providing a, almost 100% telehealth uh, video sessions, which I think is can be a great model uh, going forward. 
And I was thinking about this kind of as I was preparing to talk with you today uh, about, you know, whether that's home-based or in-person cardiac rehab, the ability of telehealth to now still be kind of that integrated feel of maybe coming into that rehab center, but through a video session, allowing more access. And so for even uh, programs that don't have a behavioral health provider on site, um, that might be easily more accessible to have someone offsite um, be able to provide that integrated service. So going back to my practice, long-winded, um, the referrals still came in. They were a little bit less. Again, our numbers dropped just in terms of participation. Um, and then so the integration and the referrals are just now starting to pick up again, I think, as the numbers continue to increase of those in the cardiac and pulmonary rehab programs. Yeah, and that's and that's some, um, I mean, everything's changed over the past year. And I think excellent advice for, I think, programs that may not be uh, or may not have access to this service today or even pre-pandemic, thinking outside of the box a little bit about how they may be able to tap into their, their systems um, behavioral specialist virtually and at least get some of that in there because we know how vital and how component and, and, and what you've outlined and what you've talked about today really highlights that, that this is, this is an absolute crucial portion of our rehab programs. Well, I want to thank you again for your time, Eva. It was wonderful to get to know you a little bit better and, and hear about all the great work that you are doing. Thank you so much. I enjoyed speaking with you. Absolutely. We look forward to your more involvement in AACBPR. And I know there's uh, many colleagues that you work closely with that would be more than happy to bring you into the organization even more. So thank you again and have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Pulse Pod from the American Association of Cardiovascular and Pulmonary Rehabilitation. If you have thoughts or questions about today's episode, I encourage AACBPR members to continue the conversation on the Pulse Discussion Forum. If you like what you hear, and maybe even your host, please leave a five-star rating and review on one of your preferred podcast platforms, and share on social media. To learn more about AACBPR, visit www.aacbpr.org. We'll see you next time on the AACBPR Pulse Pod.